Hey there, it's Corey Andrew of the Core Issues Podcast. As a journalist, pop culture commentator, and recording artist, creative experiences and having strong opinions are a big part of my life. On the Core Issues with Corey Andrew Podcast, I'll be sharing those opinions, and you may not always agree, but I welcome the discussion. On a range of topics, from social matters and politics to entertainment, LGBTQ plus issues, conversations with celebrity guests, and of course, talking to everyday people doing extraordinary things. In the new book, Determined to be a Dad, author Steve Disselhorst shares his personal story of the obstacles he overcame as a gay adopting parent. I recently interviewed Steve, and we discussed his road to self-awareness, self-discovery, self-acceptance, finding love, and finally today, having his own family. It's been going really pretty well, I would say. Um, so we have two kids. We have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. The eight-year-old is like the school sends like really a curriculum every day on what she should be working on. And then they have a, you know, they're, they start their day off with a, um, a Zoom meeting with their classroom for like a half an hour. And so for her, it really sort of centers the day. And then she gets her assignments of like what her work is for during that half an hour. And so she pretty much kind of like after that, she does her work. Like she knows what she needs to do. I mean, I need to, we need to help her, but my son, on the other hand, he's four. And, you know, a lot of the learning is really about being, you know, it's being with other kids and in a group. So he's challenging because he, four years old, four years old, they, you know, they do circle time and they watch the other kids sit still. So when there's no other kids to um, make him behave a certain way, <laughs> he's kind of just like jumping all the time. Yeah, he's of, got no know. reference. He's got no reference for like, yeah, what am I supposed to yeah. be doing right now? But you bring up an interesting point yeah. about that. I don't think people are considering that the homeschooling thing now is a necessity, of course. But there is like a whole social aspect to what kids are getting from the environment of interaction. And I guess a lot of them are not getting that at this time. Yeah, so I mean... I- I I was just actually just talking to someone like, you know, both of our kids, you know, we, we got my daughter, we got at birth and then my husband and I, we were both home for like um, paternity leave for each of us had three months. And so we were home like the first six months, my son, we got him at five months old and we were home for the first six months with him as well. We, We live in California and our, uh, state laws are really progressive. They've been progressive for years, but you know, specifically around paternity leave, basically that's a federal law as well. Like you can get up to three months. It's uh, FMLA. You can get up to three months of uh, paternity leave, but it's unpaid. At the f- the federal government doesn't uh, pay for it. It's a state um, payment, but California actually pays six weeks of that. 12 week period, they actually will give you, you like go on, you know, like disability and they pay you or it's considered disability. They pay you, you know, for six weeks. And then the employers in California, they also um, will often pay. So like for my, uh, for my, my son, who's for the company I was at, they paid a month of paternity leave. And then I ended up taking like two weeks vacation and then took the California paid leave for six weeks, which is a fraction of, you know, my salary, but essentially was covered. It was essentially for three months, like I was off and also was paid. Now, if you go to other states, like, you know, say Tennessee or something, you can take your job will be protected, but you get no paid leave. 
And so there's a big push now, especially with the, the coronavirus, the number of people that um, don't have paid leave, sick leave. It's a huge number of people. So there's a big push to get that as a federal legislation and reimbursement so that, that everyone would be able to take that when they take their leave. Hmm. I also find it odd that they wouldn't make a different classification for a man who is going to take care of his child in the first three months, other than something called disability at that point. <laughs> it's like, you know, there should yeah. be a different classification at that point. I'm not a pregnant woman who's, you know, in her trimester. Like, that's kind of neither here nor yeah. there, I guess, if you get the money. But it's just funny that we're so primitive still with that classification. As for the book, though, your background is one that I think many gay men will identify with. Um, I was not raised Catholic. I was personally raised in a, a Baptist household. But religion is religion. So okay. we know what that's about, right? That sort of repressive environment that often religion can can promote, repressive and oppressive. So in your case, yeah. though, Midwest, grown up Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of obstacles there for you to sort of accept who you were. So tell me about that realization of your sexuality and then the move towards overcoming that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was so far in the closet. Like when I talk to other, you know, gay people, LGBTQ people that are out, they're like, I had ideas that, you know, seven years old or eight years old. I, I was in such a heteronormative culture that I can remember my first uh, thought was in about the sixth grade where I was um, on vacation and like found myself gazing into the, the eyes of another, you know, child my age. And there were these beautiful blue eyes. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa, that's a boy. And I can't do that. And, and then went really like, that's not a possibility. And just, I went through really up to my senior year of college where I was in complete denial. So it was really in my senior year of college that I started to really think about it. Um, I thought about it first um, as being bisexual because I always wanted to have a family. And at that time, it was the early 90s. There wasn't really um, gay people, especially gay men, were not really having families. So I was like, I, I guess I'm straight or by because I have this strong urge to parents, but it was really like stepping into like attraction and then also sexual experience that I realized, you know, I uh, had sexual relations with women and then started to have sexual relations with men. This started to realize that I really felt at home being with men. It wasn't, it didn't feel right for me being with women. So that was about, you know, I was about 20 years old. Uh, 20, 21 years old that I really started to go, okay, this is who I am. Yeah, it's so common that we hear still that a lot of guys did not come out until much later. And very often it is those same reasons. They're like the social norms they were sort of confined by, and then they finally maybe got out of their parents' home or they went away to college and there were less constraints yeah. there and that allowed them to become who they were. But then for you though, becoming a father, you mentioned this sort of idea and you also did just confirm it as well, that the idea was that gay men could not have families or the whole thought of that was sort of like a, it was abnormal. Who knows what kind of life a child would have then with like two dads, right? And it was like not so progressive. Yep. Today, though, of course, we have a whole different world. You have like, you know, Anderson Cooper and and uh, Andy Cohen, like celebrating being gay dads and single gay dads. I mean, so what do you think about when you when you think about where you were when you were kind of coming into your own and realizing your sexuality 
and then the the anguish of not knowing if you'll ever be a parent and then now you're a dad with two children and then you have two really big major gay celebrities who are like just like the poster child for gay dads like what i mean what do you think about that whole trans that transformation in society yeah i'm i mean i think it's uh tremendous uh so when i came out it was you know 1990 and we we're in the midst of the aids epidemic and we were just trying to stay alive, right? Like mm, this was before yeah. prep. I was, yeah. I, I lived in a major, you know, San Francisco. I lived in the East Bay of the Bay area, but was basically living my life in San Francisco. It was really about not, you know, it was about trying, this was before there was any um, antivirals. It's about trying to stay uninfected. Being a parent at that time was there were, gay men that were parents, but they were largely gay men that had been in heterosexual relationships, came out later, were parents. So it was really the idea of being a uh, coupled parent was very odd. And at the early 90s, it was basically like, and there were a lot of gay men that didn't think they could be parents either. So it was really a choice of like, you know, do you want to be partnered? And in the early 90s, there wasn't a lot of adoption happening for gay men. So I really at that time decided, you know, I wanted to try to find a partner and be partnered. Um, and then during the nineties, I wasn't very successful in that. And so towards the end of the nineties, I started to think about maybe I'll parent on my own and I'll do it on my own. And then I met my husband in, um, 2003. And so I think as far as today, what I would say is that celebrities like Anderson Cooper, who I've met and, um, I'm just so thrilled we're the same age. I'm just so thrilled that he's uh, a dad and Andy Cohen, like these are amazing things. They're also in um, incredibly privileged positions to be able to do what they're doing. So for most gay men, and I would say for many gay men of color that are in different economic situations, and I've been chatting with uh, uh, a man, he's a, he's a friend. He's like, I want to be a dad. I can't wait to re read your book. And when I start to sort of press him on and he's like well i'm single i'm in my 30s like i don't have the means to like hire a babysitter yeah yeah like i i can't like i can't do surrogacy i'd love to adopt but i'm also in a state where it's not okay to gay people to adopt right so like there there is that element that's also very much still present it's like very much depends on where you live what state laws protect you for adoption. But then it's also a lot of it is economic, right? Like a lot of it is, do you have the means for surrogacy is a, you know, 150 to, you know, $250,000 to have a child. Yeah. And then when you go beyond that, it's like, you know, Anderson Cooper has nannies, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> it, which is great. Like we had, we have, you know, we had our kids had great childcare, but if you don't have a job that is, offer those types of benefits and or offers the type of pay you're really you're still very limited right yeah a dream of mine for many years i mean i think i wanted to be a dad from the time i was a kid myself i was already thinking about it and um you know, i'm not sure completely that i'm not i'm going to be to some degree but of course the financial means is a is, is a big is a big deal to consider because you know i sort of enjoy having what I have now and knowing I have enough yep. now. And then I would never want to bring a child into this world and could give him any, him or her anything less than my mother gave me, which was a lot. 
<laughs> so yeah. I wouldn't want my yeah. kid to not be able to have these things, not even material stuff. I mean, but the proper health care and, you know, they, every five minutes yep. there's shoes and there's dental work and, there, you know, so you're, you're totally right about that. I think that is a, a bit of a distortion when, when the celebrities sort of get elevated as the poster child for that movement, because they do have a lot of resources, but it does give people hope at least. It is. It does. And I would say in the States where like adoption is very, very reasonable, right? Like um, if you go through the foster to adopt program in the state of California, you pay $400 for an application. That's all you pay. And everything else is covered by the state. And actually once you adopt your child, they pay you a stipend until your child's 18 years old that if that it's a, the they what they pay you is what they would have paid if that child stayed in the foster system right so they because they're in a permanent home you get a payment every month which helps offset costs right it it helps pay for child care so there's definitely ways that people who are of you know middle or lower income can do it but again it depends on where you live i don't know what it's like in new york i would would imagine there's probably foster is probably very reasonable to do and you could probably end up with a stipend but in other states you may get nothing right um and you may make no no help now private adoption there's more expense to that but still compared to surrogacy when we did our daughter's private adoption it was about twenty thousand dollars compared to surrogacy you know surrogacy is depending on your agency 125 to 150 number of IVF treatments and whatnot. I mean, there are folks that can do it for less. It's a very big difference, right? Yeah, that is. Um, and a lot of people they want to kind of have their own, I guess, their own physical offspring. Um, but I think, uh, but I've had the conversation with my my male friends who are gay dads, and the conversation we've come up with was: if your desire to be a father is the desire, there are so many children who are already here you know you know that old argument but it's a it's a serious one like you know it's like there are children here who are looking or deserve a great home and so if you can get past this notion of like it has to be your own physical dna offspring there's a lot of good to be done through the adoption process so what do you think the purpose for your book was when you wrote it was it was it therapeutic for you or were you trying to help other men in your situation um was it a little bit of both what was your objective in writing this book so it was twofold it was both of those things so um the first i would say is that whenever i talk to people men or women you know or any lgbtq person thinking about going through a non-traditional way of creating a family. Whenever I talked to people, they were like, wow, your story's really inspiring. You know, that's really helping give me hope and it's really helping me um, think about doing this. And so I was like, well, how do I reach more people? And then Family Equality, which is an organization based in New York, did a research study and I think it was 2017 or 2018 that showed that there are like uh, 3.6 a million uh, millennial LGBTQ people that are considering becoming parents, like a big number of LGBTQ millennials are thinking at it. I think the rate was like 72% are considering becoming parents, mm. which for um, that generation is like, for my generation is 
was in much lower because we we didn't have the hope and the dream. Yeah. Whereas the millennial generation is like, they they want to be parents. And so I really was focused on the fact that there's a huge number of people out there that need um, hope and also some practical information about like what you're getting into. So the book is kind of covers like some of the pra- practical aspects of the process, but it also co- covers the emotional journey of what you go through. And so it was really to help those, you know, 3.6 million folks. Mm. Um, and then the second part was therapeutic, right? It was yeah. therapeutic. It was um, cathartic experience for me because the adoptions were challenging. Our second, our second child's adoption through the foster system was very, very challenging. And I didn't really realize how much it had impacted me until after he, we finalized his adoption in um, September of 2017. And it was like 2000 and at the end of 2018, I started talking to some other authors and I was like, wow, I, I should really like tell this story. And once I started writing, it started to like take those memories, some of the, the trauma of, of what we went through out. Mm. So it just kind of helped me heal is another, I would say, big part of why I wrote and why I continue to write about it, because it just really helped me move past like what we had been through. Yeah, so often uh, writing those things out allows you a bit more of a contemplative place to sort of look at them. And I guess when you're going through them, of course, it's so much more of a traumatic experience. And then once you're through it, writing those things down, you almost can look at it a lot more like systematically and process it, you know, and it definitely, I know the cathartic aspect to writing. So I'm glad you were able to do that and help others at the same time. So my last question for you is I see also you're involved. Um, well, you have a, your backgrounds in marketing. So that's where your, your main, I guess your main anchor has been for a long time professionally, but you have this other initiative you're working on, which is that you work with, which is a, a coaching and counseling consulting firm that focuses on development and diversity. So tell me about that work. So I, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2018 and had this sort of come to Jesus moment of like, I've lived my whole life up until that point, you know, just has as a person that would would think about living forever and then in 2018 I had to make decisions about how I wanted to treat my cancer and it really got me to think about what do I want to do in my life and it was really focused around helping people and so I started um, a, a coaching cert- certificate program and really wanted to become a um, leadership coach help people break through barriers that were holding them back from achieving their dreams and their goals and bring awareness to sort of some of the, maybe the old messages they got in childhood about what they could and could not be. And so that that's really the um, leadership development and the leadership um, coaching part of my work. And then in my marketing roles throughout uh, my corporate, I was in corporate for 17 plus years. I was always working in sort of diversity inclusion efforts. I was always involved with the Pride Employee Network at um, the different companies I was at. And and then in my last year working at Genentech, the company I was at most recently, I actually took on like a full-time role as a diversity inclusion business consultant. It was really looking at how do we change the demographics um, and leadership 
and really look at representation across leadership. And so one of the programs I worked on was a leadership development program for African-American and Latinx employees. And it was really about breaking down sort of networks and really getting uh, senior leaders in the company to sponsor more junior, uh, high, high potential employees. But, you know, where traditional networks would have had moved people forward, it was really to break down some of those narrow networks and make them more broad to include different people of difference. Now, that's so important because I uh, know that world very well. I'm, I'm also, um, gosh, 20 years now working in advertising as a copywriter. So I remember first starting working for Young and Rubicam years ago and I got to New York. The thing to, that is so amazing to me is at that time, like 1996 maybe, Young and Rubicam had organizations that they actually would contribute to. And one of them was the GLAAD Media Awards, but no one knew what it was really. They knew they were giving money to something gay and they checked the box. And um, I remember they were going around the office, literally as one woman who was an out, um, an out creative director. And she was going around like, like 11 floors of Young and Rubicam trying to give tickets away to this event, <laughs> you know, called the Glad Media Awards. No one knew what it was. And this whole idea about diversity and media and everything was not even like really still a thing on a big scale, even on that level at a major ad agency. So I remember like, you know, just not having that representation there. And then five years in, you know, you couldn't even get a seat at the table anymore. It was the hot thing and everyone, you know, we've got to have a voice there and a presence. And so the struggle is still continuing despite all the glitz and glamour though. So I appreciate your work that you're doing in that world. So thank you for that. Yeah. And I would say the struggle is very much continuing when you look at, you know, the C-level and executive boardrooms, the people that are still making, you know, decisions that are driving a lot of um, companies. There's still very much Caucasian men in those roles. And, you know, that's the work that I do as a, as a diversity inclusion business consultant is like to actually go deeper into the numbers and really figure out, you know, what are the things that are holding back people who have the highest potential, but are maybe blocked from the opportunities. And so, so yeah, it's exciting. Say the future is bright. It's, it's, um, there's a lot more intentional decision-making and thinking around how do we, uh, create true representation on the executive levels at a lot of companies. These stories are so important because people don't understand, I think, the the inner workings that go into diversity and leadership in major corporations. And also, of course, you're also sharing your story personally about what goes into the process of just being a, a family, a happy American family like any other. So that insight is, is so important. And thank you for that. And June 16th, the date that the book becomes available? Yes. June 16th, published, uh, yes. And stores or online or where would that be available? So one of the challenges with COVID is like, you know, the traditional sort of media tour or whatnot. I was, you know, we, we still don't know in California like what we're going to be allowed to do as far as meetings. So um, I will be doing a virtual launch on the 16th. You know, if we get orders here in California that there's an opportunity to meet in, you know, groups, then I'll do a live event. But it will be available online through Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and other uh, retailers online. And then obviously, it'll be um, available once stores uh, become open again, and folks can go in. Uh, yeah, so it, it's going to have a full launch and, and, and pretty much full availability across the marketplace. 
Well, Steve Disselhorst, I will make sure that our readers and our followers at Instinct Magazine know about this book and know about your work. It's very inspirational. It's a great story. I think it will give a lot of people hope. So thanks for sharing that with us today. Thank you. I appreciate your interest. It means a lot. Thank you for listening to Core Issues with me, Corey Andrew. For future episodes, please subscribe to this podcast. On Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you can follow me at Corey Andrew and follow the Core Issues Facebook page at Core Issues Media. 